Our sermon text is Mark 13, verses 14 to 23. And I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's Word today. Give ear to God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. Mark writes, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one uh, who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anybody says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But beyond guard, I have told you all things beforehand. This ends the reading of of God's word. You may be seated this morning. Well, I've already said we're kind of continuing our study through Mark as a whole, but we're also kind of bit by bit going through what's called the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13. The whole chapter is is known as that. It also is included uh, in much longer versions in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. All of the synoptic Gospels have some account of, of Christ's all of that discourse, uh, and we're, we come to a part this morning, I think, that maybe has, uh, of the whole sermon, or the whole discourse, has probably, this section, this passage has probably uh, started and engendered more curiosity and argument and speculation than maybe any other part in the Gospels, perhaps, anything else that Jesus has taught, and why is that? Well, it's not, doesn't take much to figure out. It speaks here, Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation in verse 14, and of a time of great tribulation, uh, that is so terrible, Jesus says in verse 19, that such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be, he's saying never again will be. This is gonna be the worst ever. Never to be repeated, never to be seen before, which is quite a mouthful. It's, it's really saying something to, uh, to put it that, that way. Now, of course, many, maybe most, I don't want to say all believers, but, uh, many believers upon hearing about these things naturally, I think, become very, very curious to know what these things are, what this passage means, what Jesus means by talking about this abomination of a desolation, this tribulation time. And what, why, why do we want to know these things? I, I think I've told this story, at some point you tell the same stories over and over again, but I've told the story, I think, to some of you about my, my days years ago as a youth pastor, and we had a retreat, a weekend retreat up in Big Bear in the snow, and the theme was Last Days for Dummies. You ever see those books at Barnes & Noble and whatnot, you know, whatever subject, you know, rocket science for dummies and, and whatnot. Well, we had Last Days for Dummies, and uh, we had some Q&A time, and what question do you think... Every kid there asked, uh, and, and it's practically the only question I got the whole weekend. Out of all the things about eschatology, the end times, the return of Christ, and heaven, and all these things that they could have asked, what's the one thing you think they asked the most? 
Well, what do they know about the tribulation? And the rapture, you know, that's, that's your escape patch, right? Like, uh, are we going to go through it? That's really what they wanted to know. It didn't, they, they, they thought that it was, you know, this is what's going to happen, but they wanted to know, are we supposed to go through that? That was the only thing they really cared to hear. And this was back when the Left Behind books were, were very, very popular and I believe it just come out not too much, uh, too, too soon before that. Uh, but that was the one thing they wanted to know. And the reason they wanted to know about this great tribulation was they really wanted to know, the real question is, do we have to go through that? That's a, no, not a bad question. If there is one, we, we certainly don't want to be there. You know, it's like the old saying about dying. You know, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens kind of thing. Well, we don't want to be there when this, when this happens. And so I think that's why the curiosity level uh, is always so high with these subjects. Another thing, who or what is this abomination of desolation? It's an ominous sounding phrase. Is this, is this, is Jesus here talking about a, fi- a human person, a figure? Is he talking about an event? Is he talking about a, a person or event that's in the past to us, that's already happened from our day? Uh, perhaps A.D. 70 when the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that a little bit more again today when they destroyed the temple. Is it, is it something all, all in the future? Is, is this abomination of desolation something that we're still waiting to have happen? And again, it's already been almost 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these these words. Is it a combination of those two things? Is part of it talking about AD 70 and part of it kind of a hint of bigger things to come, worse things to come? Perhaps we'll, we'll be looking at that today and also in the weeks to come as we finish up, Lord willing, this, this chapter. You probably know I've already mentioned it, that a, an entire series of Christian fiction books has been written about this exact subject. The, the Left Behind series, last time I checked, there were 16 books in the series. And I, I didn't, I didn't uh, read them. I didn't page through them all or check the, the numbers of pages. But that series has last uh, one one estimate that I read said that it sold over sixty five million copies of all those books put together. It's probably even higher than that at this point. Now that these things, those books deal with these topics from a dispensationalist perspective, and so they put everything mainly in the future, not in the past. Uh, somehow, this series has been. Again, 16 volumes, and I don't know how many movies they've made out of, of some of these. But if you were to total the pages up, it's probably pushing eight or 9,000 pages, all on a topic that Jesus spends one chapter on in the Gospel of Mark. It's remarkable that they could come up with all that content uh, to sell. Um, we can't uh, promise, I'm not going to promise you this morning that I'm going to answer all of your questions that I will solve all of the riddles of this passage uh, that you may have about these verses or even these uh, topics, those two topics this morning. Uh, if you were to read up on these topics, you'll you'll know that there's no small amount of disagreement, even among Reformed Bible commentators. Solid Reformed uh, godly men differ on these things, and so I won't pretend that I'm going to solve all those differences this morning. But our, our hope this morning is that uh, we're going to address these things in the passage in such a way as to show how they relate to us, how they apply to us. There is application. All the scripture is there for our benefit, right? All of God's word, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, is inspired. It's given by inspiration of God or breathed out by God. It's useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And what's the result of all that? That the man of God may be what? Thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we need... Passages like this 
even if the, some parts are hard to understand. God put it here for a reason, gave us these words for a reason to build us up in our faith, to equip us to do every good work that we might serve him in our day, in our generation. And so let's look at a couple things. I want to, if Lord willing, I want to look at a couple, a couple things from the text that everybody has questions about. The first will be the abomination of desolation. Happy, happy subject. The second one will be uh, the the tribulation. And then lastly, we're going to look at a few lessons that we can learn that you and I should learn from this text how we can apply this passage uh, in, in our own uh, faith and, and life. So the first thing we see in our text, probably the first thing that jumped off the page when you maybe maybe you were sitting at home and you were keeping track of where we were, and you said, oh, where's the, what's the sermon text going to be this Sunday? And the first thing you looked at was verse 14. And you said, oh boy, oh boy, I better make sure I set my clock forward so I don't miss uh, the, the uh, explanation of the mystery that no one else has been able to uh, unfurl for us. Um, but yeah, the abomination of desolation in verse 14. Look at verses 14 to 18. Mark says, or Mark writes and Jesus says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Who or what is Jesus talking about here? It's not, not an easy question to answer, and I guess I should take some comfort in the very fact that he, Mark, I believe Mark, the writer here, adds a, a, a parenthetical note. I don't think this part is Jesus' words. I think this is Mark's words when he says what? Let the reader understand. Things that are clear and on the surface usually don't require a note saying, let the reader understand. So Mark, Mark knew when he was recording Christ's words for us here in this text that this was not going to be an easy thing for us to grasp right off right off the bat. It's going to take, he expected it, and I think Jesus expected it to, to take some discernment and understanding for us to know who or what Jesus was talking about here in these verses. Now, it's, it's not really all that clear uh, as to whether this abomination is a who or a what, so to speak. The ESV, what does it say? It, it, it describes the abomination as what? Standing where he ought not to be. But in, I hate to always do this, but in the Greek, the gender is actually neuter, not masculine. It's a grammar lesson, right? Well, neuter, neuter is an it. Masculine would be a he. Feminine would be a she. It's, a, it's an it spoken of. It doesn't mean that it can't be a person necessarily, but it certainly doesn't demand that it be a he or even a person. The King James Version and New American Standard also, I think, get it a little bit better here. The King James puts it this way, when ye, that's you, when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. So the King James says it, not he, and I believe that rendering is to be preferred uh, to the way the ESV puts it when it puts it as he. Now other things, things other than, other than human beings can be described as standing, can't they? We talk about all kinds of, not even material things standing. We can talk about an idea of being allowed to stand. You talk about, you know, a, a tree standing or a thing standing. Now, uh, when it says um, in Matthew's gospel, uh, what Matthew in the, in the parallel account says this. It says, so 
Uh, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and he adds, standing in the holy place. Matthew adds a little bit more detail than Mark has in his account. He mentions uh, the prophet Daniel, and he says that this thing was standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, when you take to note, take note of, of the reference to Daniel, I think it begins to help us understand what he's talking about. Take, take the reference to Daniel speaking of the abomination of desolation, which he does at least three times in his book, and then Matthew adding that this is talking about somebody or something standing in the holy place. Uh, this points to something, I think, taking place in the temple grounds in Jerusalem. Now, remember, remember what started this whole thing? Remember what started this entire discourse or conversation or teaching of Christ? What were the disciples asking about? Remember, they're leaving the temple and they're saying in the early part of the chapter, look at these great stones, these great buildings. And Jesus tells them, you see these great buildings? Not one stone is going to be left on top of another that's not going to be thrown down. And what do they ask him? When? When is when when are these things going to happen? The Olivet Discourse is an answering that it's given to answer that question. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that this is still what he's talking about in these in these verses. The the question and the context for this whole discourse was about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. What does Daniel say? What, what, who, what is Jesus pointing them back to in the book of Daniel? Uh, one of the main things is in Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 to 27. Daniel 9, 26 to 27 says this, And after, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. He's not, he's not grasping this thing from Daniel for no reason. He's talking about the same subject. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations, there's that word, desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So it's you could say this abomination of desolation, it's both and. It's an event, and it's an event brought by an individual upon the temple area. Daniel 11.31 and Daniel 12.11 both use the phrase after this, quote, the abomination that makes desolate. That's what Jesus is referring to here in Mark 13. This prophecy in Daniel was at least initially fulfilled back in 168 BC, when you might have heard this name before, it rolls off the tongue, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, you know what an epiphany is, right? Well, his his name or his title was kind of self-deifying. He, he's, he thought he was so important that he was a, a, a god and could do what he pleased. Uh, it, 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 he, anyway, Antiochus Epiphanes was the king of the Seleucid Empire, a Greek nation. And what did he do? He came into Jerusalem in 168 BC... And in the temple, uh, on one of the altars, he made he erected an altar to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. And to make it worse, he sacrificed pigs. Now, if you know anything about, about uh, the Jewish ceremonial law and whatnot, that's an unclean animal. He basically rendered the temple unclean, ceremonially unclean. 
He outlawed the Jewish religious practice. He killed a multitude of the Jewish people there and destroyed much of the city. If you know your, your history at all, this led to the great Maccabean revolt. If you've, I know uh, Joe's not here, but at least one of you I know has read the Apocrypha or some of it. Uh, and if you read First and Second Maccabees, a lot of that has to do with what? The Maccabean revolt. And what was it in response to? Antiochus Epiphanes and the desecration of, of the temple where those uh, Seleucid forces were finally expelled by the Jewish people and their religion and practice were finally reinstated at least for a time. Now, so Jesus is pointing his, his disciples back to that. He's saying, think about this, the same, same kind of thing Daniel spoke of back in, in the Old Testament. He wants them to recall those events that, that Daniel foretold. Now that just happened, you know, roughly 200 years before their time. People probably still were talking about that that very thing in the Maccabean revolt. But what he's telling them is there's another abomination that makes desolate that was coming. And in a sense, you could say that the one that Jesus refers to is the real fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Because this one was going to actually destroy the temple. Destroy the temple of, of Herod. And that's that happened, of course, in A.D. 70, when the Roman legions under Titus came and they, we call it the sacking of Jerusalem. They destroyed the city. They destroyed the temple. Not stone was left on top of another. And it hasn't been rebuilt to this day. I mean, almost 2,000 years. The better part of 2,000 years, we haven't had a temple, a physical building of a temple. It, it was destroyed once before and rebuilt. It has not been rebuilt since then. And I believe that's the main thing that Jesus is still talking about here in our, in our passage this morning. Well, that brings us to the second thing. The second thing, maybe the main thing everybody is more worried about is this great tribulation period. Uh, the word tribulation occurs in verse 19. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70, I think, brought with it, a, a, needless to say, a great and terrible time of, of tribulation. Multitudes of the Jewish people, some estimated over a million people, were killed. It was a time uh, of, of one of the feasts, and so people had traveled to the city and, you know, Jesus, what does he do? Here he tells the disciples, when you see this coming, get out. Don't go back to get your stuff. You know, I, I was trying to explain this to Ben and Eliza, uh, this text, and I said, you know, if there's a wildfire, and we've had those here, some of you have, have dealt with them firsthand in a horrible way, but wildfire is there, you know, and it's far away, you're kind of keeping track, right? You're keeping track on the news, you're, you're checking to see how fast the winds are going, you're seeing how close it might get to your home. Uh, but you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you see fire is down the street, what do you do? You, you get out. You don't start calmly packing a bag. You don't, Eliza said, oh, I, I will take all my stuffed animals, all her, I forget what she calls them, but she's going to pack all those up, you know, you know, quickly. I mean, no, you, we're going to grab you, grab, if we're lucky, the cats, grab a few things to close and out the door and drive while we still can. That's the picture painted here. Get out while you still, while you still can. Uh, well, the reports are is that many of the, of, of the Jews of that day did the opposite of getting out. You know, you, you're, when you see the big walls around the city, you think, oh, safety. And the temple's there. Remember in the Old Testament it talked about, I think it was Jeremiah said that, that the people were, were believing deceitful words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple, nothing can touch us here. And so what did they do? Many people actually went into the city and sealed their own fate in doing so. Jesus tells them, tells his disciples, when, when you see this coming, 
Don't do what you might think to do normally. Get Just get out. If you're on the rooftop, go down the ladder and go. Don't get in the house to pack a bag. Don't uh, don't pack a lunch. Just go. It's going to be that that bad. Well, that's why he tells them to flee, to flee to the mountains in verse 14. It's another way of saying, you know, run to the hills. It's really what he's saying. Run to the hills. When you see this coming, run, run to the hills. In verses 15 to 18, he says this, let the one who was on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. For And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a picture of fleeing in haste. Which there's, there's instances of this kind of a thing all through the Old Testament as well. Remember the, the unleavened bread, the time of the Exodus? Why was it unleavened? It's to symbolize the haste that they were in to get out. You couldn't even wait for the bread to rise. You ate the bread unleavened. It was a reminder of the haste with which you had to flee, in our case, flee sin for salvation. Flee. You might know that if you've read the Pilgrim's Progress, what's, what does he start out to do? He flees the city of destruction, and he flees for, to the heavenly city. When you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember this, it might sound strange to us. Remember what he was told, don't, don't, don't even look back. I mean, run, get, you know, and he's hemming and hawing and trying to bargain with the angel about, maybe I could just go to this place here, it's, it's closer. And, and what happened to Lot's wife? She looked back and was turned to a pillar of salt, a pillar of ash. Why is that? Is it, is it, was it because the city was like Medusa and she turned around and it turned her to stone? No, it's a picture of not, her heart, where was her heart? It was still back there. She was supposed to flee in haste and get to the city of refuge as fast as they could. So they need to flee in haste to avoid the destruction that was coming. In verses 19 to 23, Jesus gives kind of a, a brief description of how bad it was going to get. He says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, uh, the ESV says no human being would be saved. It's, it's literally no flesh. It's 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 no flesh. He's talking about people dying. Is the he's not saying that that if God hadn't cut short the days that salvation, you know, from sin by the gospel would not be able to be around. He says, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone he says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible. The elect, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Now this this paragraph, with good reason, from the description, has led many to teach that there is yet to come. They don't call it a tribulation. What do you call it? The, the great uh, tribulation, that it's still yet future. It's still yet to come toward the very end, right before the return of Christ. Now, there's many different ways of explaining that and understanding that, depending on what uh, theological background that you might be from and and uh, Jesus here says this tribulation would be so bad that nothing like it had ever happened before or would ever happen again after it. That's that's now if this is the very very end, well nothing would happen after it, right? So he's saying there's going to be this this great period of tribulation uh, that we'd never seen before and would never again see after it. Now, uh, is that is that a future, a yet future great tribulation period? Are we supposed to be waiting for that 
to happen. You know, that, that may be the case. Many respectable Bible commentators, many reformed commentators do hold to a view that, that is something like that. In this passage that we're looking at this morning, it may foreshadow something like that. It may, it may be a hint of something like that, but it must be said again that the content and tone of the entire chapter, the entire Olivet Discourse, points explicitly in the direction of the events of AD 70. He still has the destruction of the temple primarily in mind here. That is the question the disciples asked, and it's still the question that he's answering, and the same goes for the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. They were asking, when was it going to happen that there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down? And he's saying, here's how you know it's going to happen. Here's how you'll know when it's going to happen. In his commentary uh, on on Mark's gospel, William Lane, uh, one of the greatest, uh, one of the one of the best commentaries on on Mark, in my opinion, it says that he says this verses fourteen to twenty three. That's our text today. Verses fourteen to twenty three form a single unit of thought, which is controlled by the command to flee when an act of sacrilege so appalling that it can only invite unparalleled tribulation is recognized. This extended warning is tied to verse 4 by the reference to all things, quote-unquote, in verse 23 and furnishes the most direct answer to the question of the disciples concerning when they could expect the destruction of the temple. And then he adds, the entire section, or this chapter uh, that we're looking at, this entire section of, of the chapter is to be interpreted in the light of the events which occurred in the turbulent and chaotic period of A.D. 66 to 70. That's the whole context of what Jesus is talking about here in this chapter. And I would add, uh, we're not to these verses quite yet, but if you look at verse 30, what does Jesus say there? Surely I tell you, this generation will by no means, or, or will not in the ESV, will not pass away until what? All these things take place. Many a scoffer and skeptic has latched onto that phrase to try to say that Jesus was wrong. Because look, we're still here. These things didn't happen. Now what are you going to say? And they've, I think they're wrong in saying that, but you can see how some, some interpretations of this would leave that verse to sound awfully odd. I don't know how you would explain this generation not passing away when he's talking about something, you know, now almost 2,000 years later and probably then some on top of that, the, the, the phrase that Jesus uses there practically demands uh, that that he's speaking of, in this chapter of things that were going to take place at least primarily within the lifetime of his disciples themselves. Now, Jesus, you know, we don't know the exact time frame, but he walked this earth in his earthly ministry for about 30 or so years, depending on, on who you look at, uh, who, whose writings you look at. They'll say he, he was crucified around the age of 33, Somewhere along those lines, well, how long is a generation? Usually you speak of a generation being around 40 years. Well, what took place around 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection? I'm not that good at math, but it hits right around A.D. 70. It seems a pretty obvious answer to that to that question, what he was primarily at least talking about in this chapter. Well, the, the, the historian Josephus, whom I've already referenced a couple times in recent Sundays, he corroborates the presence during those days of false prophets rising in those days. The New Testament already talks about false Christ coming forward. Uh, 
at, at the time. Those things, you know, people claiming to be the Messiah was not an uncommon thing to have happen. And very often, these false messiahs, what did they, why did they come forward? They came forward to try to start a rebellion. Half the reason people rejected Jesus as the Messiah was he didn't come with a sword. He wasn't the kind of Messiah they were hoping to see. And they thought the one that he was was just going to cause trouble for them with the Romans. And it's ironic that he's the one that didn't cause trouble for them with the Romans. He's the one that told them to pay, pay unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And at some point, around A.D. 66, they finally rebelled and broke out into war with Rome. And A.D. 70 followed not long after that took place. Well, it's easy to look at those two things. The, the, the abomination of desolation, the tribulation, what Jesus talks about, at least this, this particular tribu- tribulation period. And it's easy to say, well, especially if you're saying what I'm saying, and that it's, it's mainly past. So now what? what what's, the, what's the lesson for us today? Are we to look forward to some other great tribulation? Is that the takeaway from this chapter? Well, I'd like to look at at least four things briefly that this passage uh, teaches us for us today. Again, this passage is for our benefit, not just for the disciples. It may have a more direct application to them. You and I, for instance, you and I aren't called upon. I don't think we have any expectation uh, to, to run to the hills outside of Judea when something happens. We're not in Judea. We're not in that time that the temple is already long gone. But but these scriptures were given to you and I for our benefit. So what are some things that we can learn and should learn from? And the first thing of the four, and there could be more than this, uh, is self-defense. Self-defense. Notice first that our Lord cared for the physical safety and well-being of his disciples. It may seem like an obvious thing that, that might not need much comment on, but what did he do? He told them to flee. He didn't say, oh, you know, wherever you are, just stay and, you know, oh, well, if you're there, tough luck. You know, sorry, sorry about that. He says, when you see this coming, get, get out, flee, run, run to the hills. When they saw the telltale sign, this abomination of desolation, they were to flee. And it's not a, it's not a sign of a lack of faith in God to flee in the event of a disaster or a, or a, or an outbreak of violent persecution. If you read your church history books, uh, if you read about John Calvin's life, Martin Luther's life, they very often had to do exactly that. They had to flee for their lives. And they ministered in exile, especially John Calvin. John Calvin was French, uh, but he ministered in Geneva most of the time. He didn't get to go home. He had to leave and minister outside of, of his homeland. J.C. Ryle writes the following. He says, not a word is said to make us suppose that flight from danger in certain circumstances is unworthy of a Christian. As to the time prophesied of in the passage before us, men men may differ widely, but as to the lawfulness of taking measures to avoid peril, the teaching of the passage is plain. Now notice he says in certain circumstances. We are called to suffer for the sake of Christ. There's no, no question about that. But he's saying there there are times when things happen that there's nothing... Wrong. There's nothing, uh, nothing of a lack of faith in fleeing in certain circumstances. So taking lawful measures to avoid danger or defend yourself and your family is not unbecoming to a Christian, and we shouldn't think that it is. The second thing is tribulation and persecution following on the heels of that. I believe that we should take a lesson from this passage is the, is the fact that, that tribulation and persecution in this world of sin and misery will happen. 
they are not long, you know, distant past things in the history of the church. Many who want to know about the Great Tribulation and whether or not the Bible teaches some future time like that really just want to know so they can know if they have to go through it or not. We're hoping that we won't. If you're a dispensationalist, what's, what do you teach? You say, well, it's future, but God's going to pull the ripcord. It's going to be the rapture, and Jesus is going to get you out before it gets really bad. And I, I would ask the same thing I asked to my youth group years ago is when you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you read of, of, of Latimer and Ridley being burned at the stake for their, their preaching of the gospel, I'm not so sure it gets much worse than that. Did, did God forget about them? God didn't rapture them. They had to go. Th- Sometimes we have to go through things for the name of, of Christ. There may or may not be another great tribulation yet to come. Uh, whatever the case, I don't believe this particular passage in Mark 13 establishes that or settles that question for us. I don't think this passage teaches that. I won't I won't comment if other passages may or may not teach that, but this one I don't believe does. But even if there's not, let's say that that's the only thing that, that the Great Tribulation is, is AD 70. Does that mean that there's no application for us today? Even if there isn't a future Great Tribulation period to come, you and I should understand that there, there will come and have come times of persecution and affliction and tribulation for God's people on this earth. Even even today, many godly believers in Christ throughout the history of the church have had to endure such things. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now are bearing that burden. There are believers being martyred, imprisoned, suffering for the faith right now all over this world. And so we should pray for them, and we should not be overly surprised if we're experiencing that on our own sometimes as as well. Second Timothy 3.12, what does Paul say there? He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They're not going to throw us a ticker tape, ticker tape parade. If you live godly in Christ Jesus, you know, hopefully some of your neighbors will notice and they'll, they'll be drawn to, to, to Christ through that. But some of them, they're not going to pat you on the back for it. And why is that? Well, in some ways, it's a rebuke. To someone who, who refuses to repent and turn to Christ, they see somebody who is repenting, it's, it's an unspoken rebuke. That's how it's often received and, and taken. So if you live, if you seek to live a godly life, and that's what you have to do as a believer in Christ, there's no exception to that rule, you will not always get a pat on the back. You may experience persecution of some kind as a result. And I'll, I'll even add this, you may, you may receive persecution from those who call themselves Christians. Some of the most surprising persecution. When you read the Gospels, you should be shocked. I should be shocked seeing the Pharisees and scribes and, and chief priests and whatnot. Even in the book of Acts, they should have been chief among the followers of Christ, and yet they weren't. Many of them, many of them were converted later on, but uh, that, that does happen. The, the third thing that I think we should notice in our text is a, a, a little phrase that you might have noticed it when I was reading it. It's in verses 20 and verse 22. It's there twice. And that's the phrase Jesus talks about, the elect. It's almost like he sneaks it into this passage. Like, they're going to be so focused on the abomination of desolation and the tribulation, they're not even going to notice the fact that that election is taught in this passage. Maybe I should have just focused on the election part and ducked the rest of it. Uh, But, uh, you know, see in the text how God takes care of his chosen ones. How God takes care of his elect, his chosen people, and he even sovereignly organizes and, and governs things, all things, for their benefit. 
In verse 20, Jesus says that it was, quote, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, that was why he shortened the days. He also says in verse 22 that false Christs, false messiahs, false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But God would keep his elect from following after false Christs and false prophets that would accompany them. The Lord knows how to keep his sheep. The good shepherd, the great shepherd, knows how to keep his sheep, and his purpose and election will stand. If you read Romans 8.30, it says this, And those whom he predestined, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Everyone he has predestined will one day be glorified in Christ, without exception. He also says, Paul does in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will do what? Carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the NIV translation of Philippians 1.6. The one who began a good work in you to, to, to bring you the new birth by the work of his spirit, to bring you to faith in Christ, he will carry that same good work on to completion in you until the day of Christ. God finishes what he starts. He will also lose none of his sheep, for no one can snatch them out of his hand. John chapter 10, verses 28 to 29. So I, I think this is there for a reason. I think that he brings up election twice in our passage to comfort his people. Election is not supposed to be some pride-inflating doctrine. Election is supposed to be a comforting doctrine. That God is in charge of all these things, even these terrible things that happen, and yet God will lose none of his own. Even as bad as it would get, this tribulation that, that will be so bad that it'll never anything like it happen again, uh, nothing as bad as it happen again, God cares for his elect even in the middle of that storm. And orchestrates this thing, even cuts short the days for the sake of his elect. God knows how to care for his elect, and Christ will not lose any of his sheep. The last thing, finally, that we should take notice of in our text, it's mainly the main thing you think of in the text, and that is the, the reality of judgment. Uh, the Lord will judge. That's the message of the, I didn't orchestrate this this morning, but, but Genesis 7, the text we read about the flood, it's proof that God will judge. Our text here is proof that God, won, his patience runs out at some point, and he will he will judge. He's done it in the past. He judged in the days of Noah's flood in Genesis 7. He judged in the days of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. He even judged in the destruction of the temple that Jesus foretells here and that took place in A.D. 70. That was a judgment of Christ. It was a judgment of God. And as we confess every time we say the Nicene Creed, you might remember we say the Nicene Creed, it says, He, that's Jesus, He shall come again, How? with glory to judge the quick and the dead and whose kingdom shall have no end. It's part of the it's part of our faith. The warp and woof, the essentials of our faith is that Christ will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. First Peter four says this, verses seventeen to eighteen, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The context of that statement is persecution and suffering for the faith. And Peter is saying that, that's in a, in a sense, 
that that is a chastisement, not a judgment, but a chastisement of God upon his own children. Make, you know, conforming us more and more to the image of Christ, chipping away at the sin and whatnot in our lives. And he says, judgment begins at the household of God. And to an unbeliever, the suffering of the church should be a terrifying prospect. It really should. If God will chastise those whom he loves so dearly that he sent his only begotten son to die for our salvation, what is he, I mean, Peter connects the dots. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It doesn't take much to think about what he's what he's implying there. there there's no no salvation outside of Christ by faith in the gospel. And so I asked this morning, because I can't presume, are, are you in Christ this morning? Are you in Christ by faith? Have you turned to him for forgiveness and eternal life by faith in Christ alone? If you come to him by faith, he will by no means turn you away or cast you out. Amen. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that is uh, in many ways, like some parts of your word, are difficult for us to understand. Uh, we can read them and read them and read them again and sometimes scratch our heads and 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 lift our hands in the air and 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 just uh, confess before you that we we don't understand all these things. You, you say here, let the reader understand. And there are some difficult things, difficult things to understand. Sometimes difficult things to even accept. We don't like the idea of persecution and suffering. Uh, we sometimes are tempted to think that if we are forgiven for all of our sins in Christ and have all these blessings, that we should be able to uh, to, to be exempt from from the miseries that sin has brought on uh, in this world. Uh, due to sin. And so we ask that you would help us understand these things. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you lose none of your sheep, that uh, your, your rod and your staff comfort us because they, they assure us that we can't, though we may wander and though our hearts are prone to wander and, and, and leave the God we love, that you, you take and seal our hearts and you bring us back and you go after the one that, that uh, wanders away every time. And we give you praise for that. We ask this morning that uh, you would give us grace to uh, bear whatever burden you put on us, that uh, you would be with those around the world who are suffering far worse things than we are for the name of Christ, that you would sustain them and strengthen them, give them grace to to endure all things for the name of Christ, and give us grace to to be willing to endure whatever, whatever we may have coming our way uh, for the sake of the gospel. Help us to be faithful, that you would uh, just strengthen our faith. And we do pray that if anybody here this morning does not yet know you and is still in their sins and outside of Christ, that you would do what only you can do, that you would bring them, draw them to yourself through faith in Christ, that they might have forgiveness and the joy of eternal life and the hope of of heaven uh, with Christ forever. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.